You're listening to Course Consideration, the show where we get a better sense of what to expect when we enter the classroom. I'm your host, Ian Alexander Tash, and today I'm posting a remastered version of an older interview that I did back when I worked for The Runner at CSUV. Flashback to the spring of 2022. I decided to podcast for The Runner and use my podcasting time to look for the weird and the strange courses at CSUB. And one of the things my younger self noticed is that the anthropology department is where it's at. We got classes on conspiracy theories, creationism and evolution, pseudoscience, the whole gambit. And those classes are not always offered. That's where I met Dr. Robert Yoey. He teaches a class on mummies. How awesome is that? But I also noticed a little something else on his list of courses that he teaches. A class by the name of Introduction to Lithic Technology. Intrigued, I read the course description and, well, I'll let the interview speak for itself. Could you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about you? Sure. My name is Dr. Robert Yoey, and I'm a professor of anthropology here at CSUB. This is my 22nd year on campus, and well, actually, technically almost my 25th year because I taught here part-time between 1990 and 1993. So I have a great familiarity with the history of this campus and have been a part of it that time. And my interests are anthropology, of course, because I'm a professor of anthropology. My specialty is archaeology, and I have a broad range of interests and expertise that range from forensic anthropology to the hunting and gathering peoples in the prehistory of North America. And more recently in my career, in the last 20 years, I've been working in Egypt, an archaeological site called Tel Teba. So we've had a very successful program and a lot of good students over the years, and many of them have gone on to do great things in the discipline. So that's a little bit about me and CSUB. One of the things we're here to talk about today, though, that you've worked with a lot is Anthropology 4130 Introduction to Lithic Technology. Could you tell us a little bit about that class? Yeah, well, the class is designed primarily for people who have an interest in archaeology, but also for people that just have an interest in the whole idea of being able to try to replicate a technology that has existed for over 3 million years, but few people today still know how to accomplish. And stone tools have been around, as I said, for a very long time. And in lithic technology, we try to, in the process of teaching students how to replicate various types of stone tools, we also try to impress on those, particularly the archaeologists, the importance of being able to read the evidence that the waste flakes that are left on the surface of archaeological sites and then also in deep archaeological deposits over time, because frequently the tools themselves been used up off-site or get broken in manufacture and there's not a great deal of evidence to tell you about what people were trying to make other than by looking at the residue that's produced in their production. We like to call it debitage because it sounds better than waste flakes. That's a French term. But the reason it's so important to archaeology is that the one thing that survives under all circumstances, unless there's been some kind of volcanic eruption, is stone. If you make a stone tool 2.5 million years ago, 
you can dig it up three days from now and it'll look as good as it did in most cases as it did all those million years ago. So there is an abundance, particularly in hunting and gathering people's archaeological sites. The mass of what we find are stone tools or more typically stone tool waste. So we're preparing archaeologists and those people are just generally interested to be able to look at those flakes and be able to tell what stage of production from raw material that is being represented or a series of processes. Let's say the production from a raw piece of obsidian or volcanic glass to a finished spear point. That requires a lot of moves to get it from the raw material to that finished product. And along the way, the waste that you produce actually tells story. It leaves the breadcrumbs to the final product, even if that product itself is no longer there. So it may sound a bit esoteric, but it's a lot of fun because in addition to the lectures and the reading material, it gives people an opportunity to try something that most have never done before and learn a great deal about something that they've never thought about in the past. So it sounds like there's a lot of really hands-on material with the idea of learning how to make these tools, but also teaching students how to identify not just what the material is, but if it's like this, that means this type of tool is being produced, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, One of the first things that we introduce students to are what type of stones are good for making stone tools. And I'll clarify a bit further. We're talking about flaked stone tools rather than things like grinding tools and those types of materials that would be used for processing grains and grinding up other types of material. Those are commonplace in a lot of archaeological sites, but the flake stones are pretty much ubiquitous to every type of site. And by having the students, first of all, they have to learn that not all stones flake. The ones that are most like glass do flake, and those that are most like glass are generally chalcedony, flint, or jasper, of course obsidian, because they all have glass-like qualities. And that's the key, because you need some kind of material that will not only create a sharp edge, but will give you a predictable outcome as you're shaping it. And one of the fascinating things about stone tool replication, as well as one of the most challenging is the fact that you not only have to know the quality of the stone and whether or not it is going to give you what you were trying to get out of it, but it's like an advanced game of three-dimensional chess. You're always thinking about 15 moves ahead of how you're going to get to the final product by removing the next several flakes. So there's a lot more to it than people might think. In addition, there's also a number of different technologies. People just didn't make arrowheads and spear points and knives. They also produced various types of what we call blades, which are flakes of stone that are long and have parallel sides. And what's so special about blades is that they can be used for all sorts of cutting activities. And in fact, the first sickles that we have recovered from archaeological settings in the Middle East and elsewhere are these blades made out of flint that were placed in wooden handles and used as sickles. So in ancient Mesoamerica, blades were used to create a wide range of different types of cutting tools, as well as weapons. The quetel, which is an Aztec or Mayan sword, was a flat wooden handle that was lined with blades all the way around. And that particular weapon 
Milan was greatly feared by the conquistadors because it was said by witnesses that horses had been decapitated with one blow. And in other cases, conquistadors had been cleaved in two. So that was a weapon that was very useful in warfare, if you might imagine. There's a wide range of things that we teach our students as well as the history of the production of stone tools, because the very first tools made by our earliest ancestors, the hominins in Eastern Africa and other parts of Asia were very crude, but at the same time, they're more sophisticated than anything a chimpanzee or closest living relative can make. And going from a cobble that has a few flakes knocked off of it and using that as a chopping tool or the flakes themselves as expedient knives is a long cry from these complex blade technologies, the production of some of these fine Mayan eccentrics that are frequently found in Middle America. It's funny, I was talking with someone today about how people like to say that, oh, people in the past were just kind of dumb in general. Like, how could they build something like that? And it's like, well, they didn't just start building giant pyramids right away. They, they started with smaller structures and simpler structures and over time developed the sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, it doesn't surprise me when I hear that history of tools having that same sort of evolutionary process. And the thing that's fascinating about the evolution of tools is there's a direct correlation with the increasing complexity of the tools and the growth of the cerebral cortex and size because in our earliest ancestors, fully bipedal hominids that lack the canines that we see in most modern apes, they had the simple cobble tools and flake tools. And that allowed them to do a lot of things that eventually made it easier for them to live in larger groups and be more successful and not only scavenging, but later on hunting. And each step of the way provided opportunities that led to further experimentation. The earliest members of the genus Homo go back at least 2.5 million years. So we make a rather large leap in about a million and a half years from these tools that are not terribly sophisticated to ones that we call hand axes because they are about the size of a, just a bit larger than the palm of the hand in their teardrop in shape. And they serve several purposes. Not only do they serve as an advanced form of chopper, but they can also be used for digging. They can be used for cutting the joint capsules of uh, large animals that are dead. But the flakes that you remove off of them. It serves as a constant source of these expedient knives. And it's amazing to think that the types of stones that lend themselves to this kind of tool production have an edge that is sharper than surgical steel. And it's really quite humbling when you take a look at the edge of an obsidian blade at high magnification, about 600 power, and then look at the edge of a piece of surgical steel at that same magnification. And you'll note that the surgical steel looks like a crude buzzsaw, whereas the edge of the stone blade is completely straight and smooth. In fact, in some cases, we're talking about a few molecules and thickness, which makes them a superior cutting tool. The only problem is that they, unlike surgical steel, they wear out after a while and wear out more quickly. But the thing is, once that tool wore out, it can be discarded, it enters the archaeological record, then the tool maker sets up his hand axe, which is also his source of additional flake knives and he knocks another one off and goes from there. So the particular idea of using a kind of a 
bifacial core persisted for the next, well, up until fairly recently, within the last hundred years in some place. So what exactly should students expect in terms of workload for a class like this when they sign up for this? What should they be expecting? Well, first of all, it's split between lectures and the outdoor exercises. And I want to stress that this is something that we do out of doors because it is potentially dangerous in an enclosed space because every time you remove one of these flakes, it produces a cloud of glass particles, basically. So you don't want to be breathing those in. Not that you would probably produce enough in a one-hour session in an enclosed lab, but it's a safety precaution we take. Plus, it's just better to be out of doors. And we usually offer the class, of course, during the spring. So it's generally not too hot until the last couple of weeks. But generally, we just ask people to wear closed-toed shoes and clothes as they'd wear if they were going out hiking or doing things, doing chores outside, anything that's comfortable, but at the same time offers protection to the legs and the feet. Because I've seen people show up with flip-flops and I say, you don't want to do that. And they think they know more than I do. And they wonder what went wrong when their feet start bleeding. So the thing that you have to realize, as I said, you're producing these little micro knives that are extremely sharp. And I don't want to scare students off by saying, yes, you're working with these really sharp flakes. But once you learn how to do it correctly, and that's the reason I'm there is to kind of guide you through the process, it's perfectly safe and you might get the occasional cut, but part of everybody's kit, which I'll be talking about in a second, is a box of bandages so you can take care of the little nicks and cuts that you might get when you're doing percussion flaking in particular. So back to the kit for a moment. Every student is required to purchase a flat mapping kit and I've got a person that produces these kits who lives in Southern California and she's a professional flint napper, which is a colloquial term we use to describe people who replicate stone tools. And for about $25 to $50, you can get one of these beginner kits and it's got the hammer stone, which is what we all start out using because the initial stages of stone tool production is to use a hard hammer. And the hard hammer is generally a rounded stone that is either limestone or it can be basalt or quartz, but something that's it's a little bit softer is better for obsidian. And since I supply the raw material, which is obsidian, the reason obsidian is provided is twofold. Number one, it's easier for students to work. They don't have to bang on the rock as hard. And also it's easier for me to get. There are sources in Eastern California that I have access to. And so we can get obsidian very easily. If we're trying to teach students using flint, we would have to do something called heat treatment to get it to the same level of brittleness that obsidian has naturally. So the other component of these kits would be a hand pad and a lap pad to further protect your legs. And when we move to something called pressure flaking, where you're taking a preform that you've made out of a flake and you want to make it into something like an arrow point, then you have to use a piece of copper rod that is sharpened and is placed into a wooden dowel handle. And that sounds kind of complicated, but it's it's easier to use, and it's also the type of thing that was used in later prehistory. People started using copper because the typical material that people had used for thousands of years were allertines from deer and from elk, and those wear down pretty quickly. And the other option would be to take a piece of bone and sharpen it and put it in a wooden handle, but it too can wear down. So the copper, people say, well, isn't that cheating? And I said, no, because you go to ancient Cahok 
Nokia along the Mississippi River a thousand years ago, and they were using wooden handles with copper tips and ported from Lake Michigan. And then, of course, safety is important. So everyone has to have goggles. And actually, the idea of wearing masks, so we're kind of pre-adapted now that we've had to wear masks the last year and a half. I sometimes tell students, even though we're outside, if they would feel more comfortable wearing a mask. But since we're wearing masks anyway, the last time I took the class during COVID time, and I had to get special permission. And one of the only reasons we got to do it is that the lecture part was presented on Zoom, and then the actual lab and practical portion of it was done once a week. Students would come to campus, and we'd meet in the archaeology lab and in the science building, and then set up our tarp out in the loading dock area. So the kit includes not only safety materials, but the materials that you'll need to learn the basics of stone tool production. Awesome. So one of the things that was kind of good news to hear is that this class is still being offered despite the pandemic, and that's pretty nice. So you said this class is typically offered in the spring? It's typically offered in the spring. We just taught it last year, so we'll mm -hmm. probably teach it in 22-23. I think that's where we're heading to now because it's 21-22. And as I said, one of the reasons we offer it only every other year is that we want to get critical mass so we have enough people to fill the class. But at the same time, we don't want to have 25 or 30 people because it's impractical. So a good number is right around 10 students because that way I can give them more personal attention because initially people are very frustrated because it's not something that comes natural to most people. There are a few folks who are really good artistically and with manual dexterity and they figure it out right away, but most people don't. And it took me a long time to get to the point where I felt confident in just making a simple bifate or a, a basic projectile point. And the goal is not for people to, by the end of the semester have the skills of someone that's been doing this for 40 years. And if they can't make anything more than a little arrowhead or a clunky biface, that's okay. It's not about becoming an expert. It's more about learning about the process, learning why archaeologists do replication to help them understand the lithic portion of the archaeological record, which for years, I'll just add as a footnote, was basically a guessing game. People would, instead of experimenting, they'd look at an artifact and they'd try to discern its function based on what it looked like, which can be problematic, as you can imagine. And it's only been probably in the last 35 or 40 years that stone tool experimentation and replication has become more of a common part of hunter and gatherer archaeology. Awesome. Well, I do have one more question for you. It's a two-parter question. In your experience teaching this class at CSCB, what has been your favorite moment and least favorite moment in teaching this? That's fairly easy to describe. My favorite moment is when my students have their aha moment and someone squeals with delight that they actually made something that they've been trying to perfect maybe over three or four weeks. And then when they're successful at it and are excited about it visibly, that's something that makes me feel good because it shows not only that they're into what it is that I'm trying to teach, but they're setting goals for themselves, which is all I can ask people to do as a said, it's not a competition and it's not about whether you can make fabulous replicas of tools. It's just going through the process and learning it. Probably the least favorite is when someone gets really frustrated 
and throws up their hands and decide that they want to quit. And I try to turn that around. And if that person is particularly bummed out that they can't seem to make anything, I just tell them what I just said about it not being a contest. Consider it a personal mission for oneself. If you can remove a decent flake, that's more than most people can do. I've skinned a rabbit and quartered it with just a little flake, and it was still sharp enough to use again. So just creating a simple flake knife, which you can do, most students are able to do that fairly rapidly. But again, you get extremes. You get the people that are take to it like water, which is smaller in number, and then the few people that are really discouraged. But I try to turn that around, as I said, so that they don't get so frustrated that they drop the class because they're not going to be graded on their skills at making stone tools. We do a lab practicum and I'll cover the material that we go through and that's what they're going to be graded on. And if they paid attention to the lectures and watched my demonstrations as well as participated in the attempt at production of stone tools, then they'll do just fine. So that was the interview. How did you like it? Are you ready to go out there and learn how to make some stone tools? Would you want to take a class where you learn how to make stone tools? Or maybe it's not quite your thing. Feel free to leave some feedback on this episode. And remember, spring's coming up soon. So if you want to take this course, enroll while you can. That's all for today. Thank you for joining me for this month's episode of Course Consideration. Again, I'm your host, Ian Alexander-Tash, and I hope you'll consider tuning in next time.